Hello, listeners, and welcome to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast where we spotlight the researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers who are shaping the trajectory of our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, executive producer, and in this new season of Future Now, host Marina Gorbis, IFTF's executive director, will engage in thought-provoking conversations with guests involved in IFTF's Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which seeks to replace shareholder capitalism with a more humane, inclusive, and equitable approach to business practices. In today's episode, Marina talks with Corey Doctorow, a longtime journalist, science fiction author, and IFTF advisor, who co-authored the new book, Choke Point Capitalism. Marina and Corey explore the problems with the existing creative labor market, and discuss systemic solutions to distribute wealth and resources in ways that benefit creators and audiences alike. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Good morning, afternoon, whatever time it is in your area. I'm Marina Gorbis. Welcome to this webinar. I'm Executive Director of the Institute for the Future. I also lead our Equitable Enterprise Initiative And in this initiative, we're really focused on ways of creating more equitable enterprises. We're looking at co-ops, community trusts, public banks. What can we do with existing corporate structures to make them more equitable, meaning that they would distribute the wealth and assets more equitably to people who are participating in creation of these enterprises. Corey has actually been serving as an advisor to this project for which we're really grateful. And so he has a new book out co-authored with Rebecca Giblin, and it's called Choke Point Capitalism, very appropriate to equitable enterprise and all the other conversations that we've been having. Corey probably doesn't need a lot of introductions. He's a journalist. He's a writer. I used to think you're a sci-fi writer, but you're much more than that, and particularly with this book, also this proponent or open access to information and privacy and all kinds of other things. So I'm really delighted to have Corey here and to introduce his book and kind of the main thesis of the book. For those of you who are on Zoom, please post your questions or comments in chat. One thing I know about Corey is that he defies that theory that you can't multitask. He is He has this uncanny ability to do many things at the same time. I think the first time I met Corey was at an IFTF conference, and it was like years ago, like a decade ago or maybe more, and you were sitting next to me, and you had multiple devices, and you were listening, and you were participating, and I was just in awe. So you'll have to divulge the secret of that. That's a unique thing. Because it has been proven that people cannot multitask. So we'll check you on that. I think it helps if your Myers-Briggs type is ADHD. Now, I work out my anxieties on the page and on the screen. And so I have seven books in production right now. It's been a fraught time, but basically it's my semi-functional coping mechanism is to get lots of work done. It's better than the alternative. And you're just amazingly prodigious. If you follow Corey on social media, he just puts out amazing articles, posts. They're very lengthy, but they're so well thought through and there's they just cover so much territory. So you can't say a query is about information or he's about the internet because now he's about economics and equity and all kinds of other things. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And that's a good lead into this book because Rebecca, my co-author, she's a copyright professor at the University of Melbourne Law School. I have been involved in questions about copyright, the internet, speech, and equity for a couple of decades now, largely with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Creative Commons. I'm currently a special advisor to EFF. And these are issues near and dear to our heart. And after combined 40 years between the two of us in these trenches, we were both getting somewhat demoralized about the just not great character of the debate about how really asked to take a side as between team big tech and team big content and root for them as proxies for users and creators in the hopes that if one of them emerges victorious, they might dribble a few crumbs for your side when they ascend to their victorious throne. And we really have always felt like creators, audiences, libraries, and 
the people who work at some of the big intermediaries, people who work in publishing and so on, that we're all class allies, that we're united in our desire to create culture, share culture, and see to it that people get a fair deal for the culture that they make. And that this cramped dialogue had produced the circumstance where for 40 years, every time there was a crisis point in entertainment labor markets, we had expanded copyright. We made copyright last longer. We made it cover more kinds of works. We created harsher statutory penalties. In the US, there's a $250,000 criminal penalty and $150,000 civil penalty. I might have that backwards, don't quote me. For each act of infringement, and we've made it easier to secure those penalties. We've lowered the bar for proving copyright offense. And despite all of this, or we would say because of it, the share of income going to creators has fallen both in real terms and as a proportion, even as the industry that brings those works to market has become more profitable in every way. It is larger and more profitable. And the question as to how you could get this world where you give creators more copyright to bargain with, and yet they bargain it away for less and less, I think can only be answered by understanding market structures. We live in a world where there are five giant publishers, four giant movie studios, three giant record labels, which own the three giant uh, music publishers. There's two giant ad tech companies and two giant app companies. One of those is the same company. And there's a single company that controls the entire audiobook and access, audiobook and ebook market. And so when you give a creator more copyright to bargain with, in a market that looks like this, in a market where you have audiences corralled into one side of the market, creators in the other, and at the choke point of this hourglass-shaped market, you have these giant firms that are either tacitly or explicitly colluding to set the terms on which creators' works can be allowed to reach the market, then giving that creator more copyright, it's like giving a bullied kid extra lunch money. There's just not a sum of lunch money you can give to that bullied kid that will satisfy the bullies and let the kid get lunch. In fact, if you just keep shoveling money into that kid's pocket every day before school, they're going to end up giving so much money to the bullies that the bullies are going to run international advertising campaigns saying, won't someone think of the poor hungry children? We should give them more lunch money, which of course they're just going to pocket. And so we think that we need structural interventions in the market, but we also think apropos the way that this seminar series is titled, we think we need a change in the way that artists conceive of themselves. And the good news is that we've had a real change in the way that artists conceive of the creative process over the last couple of decades. There was a long run, very odd, and really, I think, terrible trend to conceive of the artist as an individual unitary creator who just creates out of the whole cloth, that their work is not influenced by other people, it doesn't build on other people, everything they make is unique and individual. And if there are elements of works that they share with other people, those elements, say the one, four, five progression in a blues or rock and roll song, those elements aren't even creative. They're just uh, like infrastructure. And even when we know who made those elements, like we know who invented the detective story. It was Edgar Allan Poe. He did it with Murders in the Rue Morgue. We just pretend that creative work is, you've used the phrase terra nullius before. This is the phrase that was used by settler colonialists to describe the lands that they came, from, came to and stole from indigenous people. And it means an empty land. And in, in the settler colonialist context, terra nullius says that anything that is being used by everyone and that no one holds a title to is basically the same as something that's being used by no one and that anyone can enclose and make their own. And so we had this idea that creators were beaching their boats on terra nullius and that everything that was lying around was owned by no one, created by no one, not really creative work at all, and that we could just, uh, we could just use, our, use it and still claim to be unitary, solitary authors. And over the last couple of decades, <clears throat> there has been a counter-reformation led by the remix and sampling movements, Creative Commons, and other people who describe culture as a foment, as a stew, 
as a business in which we build upon the creativity of others and stand on the shoulders of giants, a celebration of influence, an ecstasy of influence instead of an agony of influence, where we don't hide the fact that we take things from other people, we integrate it. And of course, that's been part of the way that we conceive of art for almost the entire history, modern history of art, except for the couple of decades leading up to this, this uh, transformation, this unfortunate transformation. It, it's no secret that Brahms's first symphony is called by classical music scholars Beethoven's Tenth Symphony, because Brahms was basically a Beethoven tribute act when he started, right? As I said, Poe invented the detective story. Everyone who's ever written a detective story is in some very important sense writing Poe fan fiction, and that's great. It is great that we build upon the works of others. My mentor, Judith Merrill, who is one of the great science fiction critics, writers, and editors, wrote in her memoir about how every idea in science fiction for decades was created around these giant spaghetti dinner tables by this group of leftist science fiction writers who lived in a polyamorous group house in New York called the Futurian House. They were actually excluded from a Hugo banquet for being too leftist. And later on, Judy, I grew up watching Judy on our local public broadcaster in Ontario, TV Ontario, where she would get on before every episode of Doctor Who. And she was a lifelong chain smoker and this kind of grizzled, amazing older woman. And she would just go, yeah, I remember when we invented this idea. It was this time when Harlan Ellison was in town and Fred Pohl and he were arguing and someone came up with this incredible idea and we just stayed up all night talking about it. We celebrated those influences influences and we're celebrating them again and this is great artists conceive of themselves as being part of a collective enterprise when they create but when they take those works to market we still maintain the idea that the artist is a kind of llc of the portfolio a kind of individual small business person negotiating with these other businesses not someone who has a collective right that they bargain within but an individual that they can bargain away and this represents another sea change in how we conceive of many of the rights that we have in copyright. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little parable about this before I turn it over to Marina and your questions, and I'll wrap up this talk. But I'm gonna, I want to contrast for you the stories of two different very important musicians. One is Taylor Swift, another is, and the other is a musical act called De La Soul, which is a very important hip-hop act. So Taylor Swift, you're doubtless familiar with, she's the most powerful recording artist and touring artist in America. And the and she had this dispute with her record label where her record label owned her masters. Her record label was acquired by a person she loathed and who loathed her and who made no secret of the fact that he wanted her to be miserable. And so he made sure that when he used the private equity money that he'd gotten to buy the, the her masters and then flip them, that when he flipped them to another private equity firm, this being the family fund of the Disney family, he made sure that he maintained out of that whole portfolio a claim on the revenues from her masters, just so that she would know that for the rest of her life, anytime someone enjoyed her music, her arch enemy would get a little richer. Now, here's the funny thing about compositions and recordings. They are not individual rights. You can bargain with them as an individual the first time around, right? If you write a composition and record it, you get to record it the first time around or the person you authorize to record it gets to record it the first time around. But once there is any recording in the stream of commerce of any composition, any other person in the world, musician or not, can record it. In fact, they can perform it too. They pay either a blanket license for performing at venues and so on. They have these blanket licenses that allow anyone to get up on stage. That's why if you go to a karaoke or an open mic night, you don't see the bartender frantically dialing the manager of some musician before someone launches into a song to make sure that they have an authorization to perform it. It's just a blanket license the venue pays. And anyone can record any song. When Sid Vicious recorded My Way, Paul Anka did not bargain for that, that recording. Sid Vicious just paid the compulsory license, or rather his, his label paid the compulsory license. Paul Anka got some money. So that collective right, it belongs to every musician. And there's a good reason for that, right? There isn't anyone who ever learned to play music except by performing other musicians' music, usually in public. That is the nature of music. There's a kind of, it would be an ahistorical, crazy thing if you could not perform the music that you enjoyed. And the only way to become a musician was to write your own compositions without first performing and mastering compositions that you had enjoyed and that your audience enjoyed. That would be the end of music as we understand it. So everyone has that collective right. Among the people who have that collective right is Taylor Swift. So here's the thing. 
Taylor Swift went back into the studio and recorded covers of Taylor Swift songs. She re-recorded all of those albums, paying into this compulsory license, using this collective right that, was, that belonged to everyone, that she could not bargain away. And if you're a neoclassical economist who likes to view the world in neat equations and thinks of everything as being a kind of a perfectly uniform cow and a perfectly spherical shape, perfectly a uniform density, rolling around on a perfectly frictionless surface, you would assume that if we gave creators that right to bargain away, that they would bargain it away for more money and they'd have a better outcome. But quite the reverse is true. It was only because Taylor Swift could not bargain away that right at the start of her career, when she had no bargaining leverage, that she was able to retain that right and use it to re-record all of her songs. And if you go into any music store online, or if you go to a music streaming service, you can stream either the old versions of the masters or the new versions of the masters, which Taylor Swift owns and which that scumbag who wanted to torment her has no claim over. This is a win. When we conceive of artists as being part of a collective endeavor, and when we think of the rights that they have as not things that they bargain away as entrepreneurs, but rather as things that musicians as a whole are stewards of, musicians win. And I want to contrast this with an individual rights story, and then I'll turn this over, as I say, to your questions and to Marina's guidance here. And, and that's the story of De La Soul. De La Soul is one of the seminal hip-hop acts. They came up during the golden age of sampling. This was this period in which sampling was not subject to copyright. It wasn't really even a fair use of copyright. It was just not considered within the realm of copyrightable subject matter. It was not something that people applied copyright to. In the same way that, like, if you're a trumpet player in New Orleans and you're doing a jazz solo and you drop a couple of bars of some standard into the middle of that solo, it's it's not a copyright. It's not a copyright. It's just, it's in a completely different realm. It's funguses aren't plants, right? It's just like a different genera of activity uh, that wasn't really subject to copyrightable control. And so that's the way that we treated samples. And there were a couple of complicated court judgments. There was enormous consolidation in the recording industry. As I say, three companies now control 70% of all the recorded music. That's Sony, Universal, and Warner. And they own the three publishing companies that control 65% of all compositions. And between them, they created this new practice that kind of took on the force of law because no one would insure anyone who behaved otherwise. The the Sorry, someone's just posted something in the chat that I got distracted by for a second. It's a good question, Sander. We can come to that after. And so we came to this juncture where we had to decide what we were going to do about sampling. Now, we could have created a collective right. We could have created a blanket license that works a lot like the blanket license for compositions, where we just say, look, if you pay a fee, you get to use any sample you want in your music. We could have said, it's not a copyrightable subject matter at all. We could have said, like, this is just two seconds of a song or a single snare captured and remixed or a lick that's taken out of a recognizable song as a way to reference it. That is not a copyrightable activity. There's no licensing involved. No one gets any money. Instead, what we did was we created an individual, an individual right to control your sampling. And this is where the choke point capitalism comes in, because... With three companies controlling all the recordings, and I am at pains here to point out that these three companies didn't get 70% of all the music in the world by investing in it. They got 70% of all the music in the world by making anti-competitive acquisitions at fire sale prices in the, the first couple of decades of the century without any meaningful merger scrutiny by the Federal Trade Commission or the DOJ. They were just allowed to gobble up all the other record labels. So they're not... Um, companies that invested in music. They're companies that used access to the capital markets to buy companies that invested in music. Their own portfolios are quite small relatively, relative to the total holdings. So these three companies, they said, great, there is a new individual right to bargain over sample licenses. And here is our uniform business practice across the big three labels, which I don't think they necessarily explicitly colluded on, though they may have. I just think that when you have three companies in a sector, everyone in the C-suite used to work at at least one, if not all, of those other companies. And they all know each other. They just they see each other at Little League games. They're executors of each other's wills. They are godparents to each other's children. They give each other away at weddings. They socialize with each other. And they emerge a tacit collusion of practice across the whole sector. Certainly that's what happened here. There is a single practice across the whole sector and it looks like this. If you wanna sample music, you have to be signed to one of the big three labels. And when you sign to one of the big three labels, you have to sign away your sampling rights. So this is a flywheel. Anyone who wants to make a new song that involves a sample, 
has to give control over their samples to one of the big three labels as a condition of sampling the music that they want to sample. And they have to pay out of their advance for every sample they use. But those payments don't go to the artist because the, who made the music they're sampling because they too have signed away their sampling rights. And here's how this played out for De La Soul. For 15 years, De La Soul and their management tried to clear the samples for their seminal albums. They didn't manage it. Not until this month. Not until a month after the frontman for the band died with his music just buried. This doesn't make any musician better off. This doesn't make music better off. This just makes labels better off. And that is the problem with conceiving, with having this register where we conceive of creators as individual bargainers instead of as sectoral bargainers, instead of people who have collective rights to the foment that is the, that is the culture that they make, that they contribute to and draw from the commons that they make, that they can be stewards of in a kind of Ostrom way. I know I said I would finish with this, but I do want to bring up one more thing, which is AI. And when Rebecca and I started touring this book, everyone wanted to ask us the same boring questions about NFTs. And the second half of the tour of this book, it's been questions about AI. And the question everyone wants to know is, what do you do about the labor implications of AI? Except they don't know that's their question. What they say is, how do we stop people from stealing our work to train with it? And that is a trap. It's the same trap as sampling. Because here's the thing, what a machine learning system does, and God, let's just have a moment here where we acknowledge that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent, that machine learning doesn't involve any learning, that when we use these terms, we contribute to the crita hype that makes them seem like they are uh, more powerful and amazing and mystical than they actually are. So the thing that these, there's actually a great acronym for these that an Italian member of parliament came up with. I can't spell it real out off the top of my head, but it spells out salami. So the thing about these salami systems, which is what this MP calls AI systems. The thing about these salami systems is that the way that you make them is you infer mathematical relationships between elements of training data. So words or pictures or whatever, sounds. So this is like going around the art museum and measuring all the noses and coming up with a statistical picture of a valid nose. What does the bell curve of all noses on paintings look like relative to the other photo elements or visual elements in the painting? Um, that is not a right that we should give individual control over to artists or even collective control over to artists. The way that you make art is by looking and thinking hard about other art. And in the same way that giving artists the right to control who can record a cover or perform a cover of their music would be bad for music. It's no one would have been able to make any of the music we have now if that had been the rule. If we create another rule that is comparable to this, that controls who can study your work and make inferences from it, we will be once again creating a rule that none of the work that, that we're supposed to be protecting could have come into existence if that rule had been there. And a lot of people are like, even so, we should create that right because people want to put artists out of business with the again, generative AI, which I'll call generative salami, that will replace them. And that's absolutely true. That is 100% true. The reason that tech companies and their customers are so excited about salami is not because you can make fun prompts that you post to social media. It's because firms that currently pay creative workers see the opportunity to zero out their wage bill by training new models on those creative workers' output and then replacing those workers with new machine learning salami art, salami words, salami pictures, salami sounds, and so on. That's the reason they're excited about it, is they want to eliminate that wage bill. But when people get angry about salami, they tend to be angry about like randos on Twitter who make funny illustrations or funny blobs of text with salami. And they go, look at you participating in the exploitation of workers. Someday I'm going to have the exclusive right to decide who can train with my material. And when I get that exclusive right, I'm gonna stop you from doing this. Now, here's the thing. Those randos on Twitter were never gonna pay a writer or an illustrator or a photographer or a sound artist or a voice actor to produce the things that they're sticking on social media. However, if we were to create that exclusive right, the highly concentrated firms that comprise the sectors in which those artistic workers currently earn their living would immediately amend their boilerplate contracts, just like Warner, Sony, and Universal did with sampling, to say, as a condition of working for us, you sign away the right to, to train material with 
your or train a model with your material. In fact, that's already happened. As soon as people started making noises about about new exclusive sui generis rights to train a machine learning system, a salami system, the game studios that employ the plurality of voice actors, they amended their terms so that every voice actor session for those games now begins with the voice actor saying into the mic, my name is Cory Doctorow, and I hereby permanently and freely sign, assign any rights to train a model with my voice that do exist or will exist in the future forever. And so the only firms that have access to enough training data to build a model to replace the creative workers are the same firms that want to replace the creative workers and that would use that data and that market position that they have to actually zero out their wage bill and put all those workers out on the street. So what are we going to do about this? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But I tell you, like, we shouldn't make it worse. We shouldn't create exclusive rights that then allows these firms to to zero out their wage bills. Instead, we at least one thing we could do is cheer on the U.S. Copyright Office, which has so far been pretty adamant that except under very narrow conditions that works produced by a salami system are not eligible for copyright, which allows us to turn around to a company like Disney and say, yeah, by all means, train a model on all of your animators' work and produce new feature films with it, but you don't get any copyright over those feature films because copyright only inheres when there is a human creative laborer involved in the process. And the copyright office is, and that's not writing a prompt. It's not doing a little touch-up work. It is a significant creative contribution to the work. That is what attracts a new copyright. And so maybe that's the poison pill that lets the people who are gonna invent the next sampling, but they're gonna do it with salami, continue to make cool, interesting, funny, and amusing salami on the internet, and then prevents these large concentrated firms from replacing their workers. Anyway, that is my uh, little uh, brief on choke point capitalism. The first half of the book is explanations of how the accounting schemes work, and the second half are systemic answers to how we can change those market circumstances so that we affect the material distributional outcomes of the way that those creative labor markets work. I hope you'll give it a chance. I hope if you read it that you'll read past the first half. We've heard from readers that sometimes by the time they get to the first half, at the end of the first half, where all we've done is explain how the scams work, they're hearing an alarming ringing sound that they think might be a rage-induced aneurysm, and they want to stop. But the second half of the book is very hopeful. It's shovel-ready ideas for making a difference. I hope you'll give it a shot. Thank you. Thank you, Corey. And I highly recommend reading the book. And I actually think the first part of the book, and I'm interested in history and how we got to where we are. So I highly recommend it. I have to say the sections on musicians and music and what happens with, you have to dive really, you dove really deep into that. And the only reason I was so interested is because my son is a musician. So I'm like, okay, this is really, this is close. So there's a lot of richness in the book and historically and connecting ideas and how we got here and talking about the register that led us here. But I'm going to focus on some of the labor aspects and some of the things really related to equitable enterprise and wealth inequalities and all of that. So one thing is you talk about that artists are canaries in the coal mine. What happens to artists is a little preview, as we call it, signal to what's happening in many other places. And I think that's really worth unpacking. What is that coal mine that we're all living in and more of us are going to be living in? And let's start with this. First of all, the National Labor Act, right, which excluded many types of work from any kind of protections in the U.S. So that includes creative work, artists' work. It includes domestic workers. It includes agricultural workers. So already the artists, there is a kind of a similar path for many other places in our economy that we're there are no protections, right? So artists is just one part of it. So that's one thing. The other thing is, it, let's talk about the antitrust, and you talk about how we turned antitrust on its head, and it's working, instead of working to distribute power and distribute wealth and distribute resources, it's actually working against small enterprises and individuals. And just to put a little bit of a, why that is important is that 
if you've been looking at the data in the last two years, the number of people or the number of new businesses that has been formed has really skyrocketed. And most of these businesses are basically one-person LLCs. These are people who are not planning to hire anybody else. These are your gig workers, your freelancers, and others. So speak of Canary in the coal mine, it's not just artists. It's your Uber driver that been forced to become an LLC or your therapist who is now an LLC, a doctor. We did ethnographic interviews during the pandemic and found that a lot of doctor's practices, independent doctor's practices have been acquired by hedge funds and they're working on demand just like everybody else. So emergency room visits go down, you don't get to work, your income goes down. So more and more people are falling. We're all becoming artists in some ways. So talk about that whole notion of antitrust and why is it working? First of all, no protections, no labor protections for this new large and growing type of labor force. And second, the antitrust. Yeah. So I think many of the people on this call will be familiar with the new foment in antitrust, that there's this kind of neo-Brandeisian movement to go back to a kind of antitrust that we used to have. And there's, I think, a sense among people, even people who don't really understand antitrust law very much, and it's a pretty obscure area of law, that something went wrong somewhere along the way. It it can feel a little mysterious, right? It can be like, how is it that we ended up not just with this highly concentrated arts sector, one company that owns all the cheerleading leagues and one company that owns all the pro wrestling leagues and one company that does all the horse shows and two companies that do all the athletic shoes and two companies that do all the beer and two companies that do all the spirits and three companies that do all the shipping and five giant banks and so on. How do we get here? 40 years ago, we had a sea change in the way that we conceive of antitrust. We threw away the... the long-standing standard for antitrust, which was this idea that firms could be harmfully dominant, that when firms got large enough, they could hurt lots of different stakeholders. They could pollute the political process. As I mentioned before, when there's just a few companies, it's really easy for them to decide on what their lobbying priorities are. If there are a hundred companies in a sector, they can't even agree on how to cater their annual meeting. But when there's three of them, every time a regulator asks what the policy should be, they can sing from a single playbook. It's very straightforward for them. You may remember when John Legere took over T-Mobile, he called himself the un-CEO of the Unfo company, which was just this incredible thing because he was a veteran of Sprint and AT&T. He'd been in their executive ranks for decades. This guy is not a telecoms outsider. And you see this across the board. And under Reagan and his successors, we decided that the only thing that really mattered that antitrust should really attend to is when prices go up for consumers. This is called the consumer welfare theory. And the corollary of that is that anything that firms do to reduce their wage bill is fair game under antitrust, that antitrust in fact wants inputs to a manufacturing process or a service process to be as cheap as possible so that those can be passed on to consumers. But there are a couple of problems with this. One is that except for people who are born with all the money they're ever going to need because they won the which orifice did you emerge from lottery, every consumer is also a worker. And so if your wages are going down as prices are going down, you could still end up with less purchasing power. And then there's the other problem, which is that this is corrosive to our political process. And so here you have this dynamic where workers across the board are getting squeezed. Um, you have firms that are able to suborn the political process so they can maintain the fiction that their workforce is entirely composed of independent contractors and not employees, even though they are employees in every, in every way but name. And so they can evade labor law. And then on top of that, you have some of the unique and distinctive characteristics of the arts and of some of those other trades that you mentioned. So um, the arts are subject to something that the theorist Vazi Etar calls vocational awe. I'm going to paste a link to her paper here. Vocational awe is the sense that what you do is really important and matters and that people rely on you. And that in the arts, we know how this works, right? There's the old joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus and his dad tracks him down and finds him shoveling elephant shit. And he says, son, come home. And the kid says, what? And quit show business? Everywhere you look, teachers, nurses, doctors who are having their wages squeezed and their working conditions degraded and their bosses are basically making a bet. The bet is that you won't let your patients die. You won't let your students sit in an empty classroom 
even if it means going on food stamps. It's exploiting our natural human instincts for kindness, creativity, and all these other things. Yeah. And then you say creators are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, and that's true, but creators have this other thing. They have copyright. And I think that copyright has worked against creators because the reason that Sony, Warner, and Universal are able to hold that portfolio of 70% of all the recorded music is because copyright endures for so long. So the copyrights on those works is 90 years. To a first approximation, there is no such thing as a 91-year-old sound recording, which means that if you hold the copyright to a recording, it's effectively a perpetual recording. And so if those copyrights had expired or reverted or any of the million other ways we could have arranged them, we those the market power of those firms would be much d diminished. One of the things that, and we didn't get into this in the earlier talk, one of the things the big three labels were able to do with that portfolio was structure Spotify. Spotify was only able to get a license to that portfolio by bringing in the big three labels as business partners, who then set the infamous rock bottom one-sixth of a penny royalty rate for Spotify streams, because every dollar they took out of Spotify as a licensor was a dollar they couldn't take out of it as a shareholder. And the dollars that they took out as shareholders were theirs and theirs alone. And the dollars they took out as licensors, their labor force, the musicians, had a claim on. And so they deliberately suppressed the price of streams so that they could increase the or improve the cash basis of this business that they were partners in. And the only reason they were partners in it was because these extremely long live copyrights. So that is an area where the arts are unique. Vocational law is not unique to the arts. The atomization of artists that arises out of this conception of artists as entrepreneurs of the portfolio is common to the whole rise and grind culture of the gig economy. When you hear them talk about Uber in the early days, it was like, you can basically have a craft industry, right? Instead, of, we can go back to the Edenic time before the Industrial Revolution, where weavers worked in their lofts to their own hours. And when the sun was shining, they could take a break, stand up from the loom and go outside and smell the breeze. And if you're an Uber driver and you're driving along, you don't have a boss, you stop and you touch grass, right? But, um, that's not how those... Uh, but in those days, you had the guilds, which... Yeah. yeah. And that, there, that was the difference. ...afforded some kind of protections and other things. But in today, in the U.S., you it would be looked at as a collusion if, for example, independent one-person LLCs yeah. or two-person LLCs decided to advocate and organize. Actually, the yeah. antitrust is now attacking yeah. the small people. Yeah because they're rigging the prices. They're fixing the prices. Right. That's right. And this is this is a characteristic of monopoly more broadly is that it's it ripples out through the supply chain defensively. So in the arts market I'm most familiar with, which is the book market, we used to have six big publishers. When I started, we had 30. Then we had six. And the six big publishers colluded with Apple to rig the price of eBooks against Amazon because Amazon was selling eBooks below cost as a way of cornering the market. Those eBooks were all encumbered with Amazon's digital rights management technology, which is a felony to remove, which means that you could never break up with Amazon without throwing away your books. Even the copyright holders of those books couldn't authorize you to remove the DRM. And it's more illegal to remove DRM than it is to pirate them. In other words, if I, as the copyright holder, give you a tool to remove DRM from my book that you bought on Amazon, I commit a worse crime than if you pirate that book. Right. That that even though no copyright infringement takes place, that's a crime punishable by a five year prison sentence and a five hundred thousand dollar fine. So the the publishers colluded to, to rig the price. They wanted to fix the price at a higher rate so that Amazon couldn't undersell all of the other merchants and put them out of business so that they wouldn't end up having the whip hand over the publishers. This was price fixing. It was illegal. The FTC kicked their asses over it. And so what happened? Random House bought Penguin. Right. And then they tried to buy Simon and Schuster. Because when the CEO of Random House, the CEO of Penguin, and the CEO of Simon & Schuster sit down to talk about what the price of an ebook is going to be, that's a legal collusion. But when they all merge into one company called Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster, and the president of Random House, the president of Simon & Schuster, the president of Penguin get together in the boardroom at corporate headquarters, that's an internal matter. And so you see this ripple all the way through the supply chains. You see it in, in medicine where pharma companies colluded to or merged rather, raised prices on hospitals. Because ultimately it's about the argument is that it's better for the consumer. So back to that, the antitrust sure. is not about distributing power and resources. Right. It's about 
the consumer and protecting the prices and making it cheaper, which, by the way, means that wages are lower. How do you cut your prices is you lay off people yeah. and you yeah. cut yeah. costs. Yeah. I guess my question to... to the reason I asked it, you've been on the road, you've been doing presentations, you write, you are interacting with a lot of people. I'm just wondering, do people see these connections? Are you getting the sense, like there is a kind of a sense of solidarity that should be there between the artists and domestic workers and agricultural workers and each one is in arts sometimes is viewed as an elite thing, only accessible to certain people and certain people are involved in that. But are you seeing this kind of solidarity emerging around these issues because the issues people are confronting are very similar. So I think we are, but I think people are still in their solidaristic impulse reaching for things that will undo that, that will be their undoing. They're individual undoing. things. So yeah, AI is the, AI would be the example, right? People are like, all the artists need to get together and demand an exclusive right to train from their work. That is the impulse is right, but the prescription is wrong. Um, and that's what happened with sampling too, right? Sampling, the transition from sampling as a free-for-all to sampling as a licensed activity in large part was carried out in the name of acts, which are the, it's a euphemism for black people, right? And heritage acts got a very bad deal. It, it wasn't like anyone got a great deal, but the heritage acts got a really bad deal. To give you an idea, this is what a good deal looked like in the golden age of the record labels, the Beatles used to share one penny four ways for every LP they sold, but not the whole penny because 15% of the penny was withheld for marketing expenses. And then they had to give their manager 10% of what remained. And then of the fraction of a penny, they split it four ways. They were the lucky ones, right? They were the white artists who had some power. Black artists got a worse deal. And so the theory was you got all these R&B artists, soul artists, heritage acts who are being sampled by modern artists. We're going to give back to them by creating this exclusive and what we ended up doing was instead there's like a one-time windfall for a few artists and then we just made a whole genre of music illegal basically no one not only do does modern music involve paying for samples but the price tag is so high that nobody makes music of the sort that was being made by Dilla Soul the two most successful hip-hop albums of that era were Paul's Boutique and It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy if either one of those albums had cleared all the samples at the going rate when they were released each CD would have had to cost $150. So there is a kind of music that musicians can't make and audiences can't listen to because we effectively banned it in the name of protecting artists' rights. And so you see that, that same bad impulse, right, in, in the AI debate. But I think it's feeding on that sort of transformation where we moved into the register of thinking of ourselves, that whole identity as a consumer, right? That's what we see, and that's how we conceive ourselves, less so as a worker, less so as... Not with AI. That's the cool thing about the AI debate. Is the bad thing is I got a dumb idea. The good thing is that these are a bunch of people who are self-identifying as creative workers, identifying AI as a labor issue, and are saying we should act in concert as laborers to protect our wages. They just, it's, it's, there are lots of instances in which the solidaristic impulse goes the wrong way. For example, the Communications Workers of America, which is a union I love and have a lot of respect for, has decided to back the Microsoft Activision merger, which is a terrible merger because Microsoft has signed a non-aggression pact against union organizers at Activision, Blizzard Activision. I think they will renege on that promise. I think anyone who knows Microsoft's labor history should anticipate that. But I also think that video games is one of the most exploitative labor markets we have. It has vocational law. It has all the other problems. And I understand why the Communications Workers of America want to back this, right? So that it's possible for people to have a solidaristic impulse and to misunderstand or act instrumentally in respect of market structures. And that's why we're trying to, you want to change the register. We want to widen the aperture, right? We want people to think beyond this next thing. It is good that we're arguing about AI instead of NFTs because the whole point of NFTs was again this entrepreneurship, right? It was just like you could, we're going to make a superior commodity that you can flog in the marketplace as an entrepreneur. So you're a sci-fi writer and let's just I don't know you maybe you've written about this or so these same technologies if they've fallen into a different register or if they emerged in a very different register with a different set of antitrust laws, the different sort of understanding, uh, not necessarily having this 
incredibly developed sense of being a consumer and that consumer identity where some of the things you've been fighting for, open access to information, commons-based, more investments in public infrastructure, what would it look like? Or the argument on the other, well, there are some of the arguments that we're not going to be, we wouldn't have these technologies if not for this existing system and risk-taking and putting VC money into it. We all know that a lot of these technologies came out of government investments. We're still living off those major government investments. But what if we, what if it, they emerged and were produced in a very different register? What would they look like? I think that was the contestation of the computer lib movement, the publish publications like Creative Computing, Stafford Beer and Cybersyn under Salvador Allende. There were there, there has been a kind of Promethean left in digital technology for as long as there has been digital technology, right? There have been people arguing for seizure of the means of computation by the people who use it and work with it. And in terms of like science fictional visions for that, I've got a novel coming out in November called The Lost Cause. I posit a post-Green New Deal society where a lot of what we do is grounded in a kind of modern, highly connected version of the rhythms of farm life Except instead of rising and, and working when the sunset is arisen and then going to bed when the sun sets, we work on the big projects of the next three centuries, which are things like relocating every coastal city 20 kilometers inland when there's wind, sun, or tides to power the renewables. And then we use our networked technology to find people to enjoy leisure with when there's not enough power to run things, right? That rather than trying to come up with baseline that can support all of manufacturing all the time, we practice a kind of arbitrage that includes leisure, right? Where we replace, in my novel Walk Away, we replace uh, destination-driven aviation for vacationers, where you get in a plane and cook the world to go to a specific place with what they call bumblers, which are only incidentally impelled zeppelins. Every good science fiction novel needs a zeppelin with big luxurious staterooms that you get in and that go where the wind is blowing. And as soon as you figure out where that is, you use your networks to figure out who's there and that you want to see who's like a friend of a friend or a friend or who's got an activity or an affinity group or a sport or a something that you want to do when you arrive. And so it's like a lucky dip form of holiday, but where every dip is lucky. And so there are lots of ways to imagine this kind of Cosian task being mastered by our computers, right? This coordinative task where we figure out how to work together on projects. That is what computers are for, right? That they're a thing that lowers the coordination cost to do things. We we make encyclopedias and operating systems today with the kind of infrastructure that we used to make like really ambitious bake sales with because we have made it so much cheaper to coordinate. Is the title The Lost Cause because how you feel about No, it's about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias. So it's a reference to the Confederate nostalgia and it, it posits a kind of future Confederate nostalgia grounded on in the reactionary MAGA movement of this decade. Can't wait yeah. to read that. We have just a few minutes left. And speaking of time and leisure and different rhythms of based on winds and other things, in the book, one of the solutions you proposed is job guarantees, but I didn't see the solution of universal basic income. So is that on purpose or yeah i'm not a big ubi believer it's a long it's a long argument i'm a modern monetary theory person i think that and i think that which is another very long thing that we don't have time to get into but it's a way of conceiving of where money comes from and what its purpose is and i think a ubi is a is is a system for apportioning the plenty that we have in the world right and I don't think we have, as I said, I think we're going to spend the next 300 years moving all the coastal cities inland, right? Like, I think we've got all the work that everyone in the world wants to do. I think the way, I think a job guarantee, which is to say a socially inclusive, federally funded, locally administered job with good benefits and good wages, which increases the minimum wage from zero, which is the current minimum wage, that's how much you make if nobody will give you a job, 
to a socially inclusive middle class wage that affords material abundance and good working conditions such that you have the leisure time needed to pursue the arts as part of everybody's creative life. And that puts a floor under the working conditions any employer can offer. And we'll have to not... have a longer conversation about that, having grown up spending my early years in a place that had job guarantees. This is not a job mandate, so it's very important. And you should have your much more immediately post-Soviet than I am. My, my grandmother was a child soldier in the siege of Leningrad. My grandfather was, or my father was born in the Soviet Union, but I was born in Canada. That's a whole different conversation that I would love to have. You should have Pavlina Cherneva, who was who raised in Bulgaria and who is the, the leading theorist of jobs guarantees on it to talk about Sovietization and the difference between a job guarantee and a Soviet mandatory work. It's all how it's for both for UBI and for job guarantees. It's all it's a matter of how it's structured yeah. and the incentives yeah. and all of that. What I know, there's a, I think there are six sort of solutions you offer. I think it's six, right? At the end. Yeah. How about if I, how about if I run down one of them really quickly? Okay, so here's this is the one weird trick one. If you are entitled to a royalty for your work because you have a publisher or a label or a studio, your contract usually includes the right to audit your royalty statements. When you do, you will often find discrepancies. We cite a firm in Los Angeles that's done tens of thousands of record label audits over 30 years. Every discrepancy that they found except for one has been a discrepancy in the favor of the label and not the artist. <laughs> we can only assume that this is due to some very vexing localized probability storm that makes life very hard for the CPAs at the big three labels. When you identify this discrepancy and you say, you stole my money, I want you to give it to me, the label will say, you're adorable, but artists can't do math. We don't owe you anything. However, just to keep things friendly between us, we'll give you a settlement, a few pennies on the dollar. All you need to do is sign a non-disclosure so you can't tell anyone else where we hid the money we stole from them. And those contracts, those non-disclosures, they're a matter of state law. All of these contracts are settled in four states. They're settled in California, New York, Washington State because of Amazon, the game studios, and Tennessee because of Nashville. If we amend the state law in one or all of those states, and state laws are much easier to amend than federal laws and regulations, to say that as a matter of public policy, uh, non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or misstatements in royalty statements that were down to the detriment of people owed a creative wage. We will put more money in the pockets of more artists all over the world because they're all signing contracts in California, New York, as Tennessee and Washington all over the world than 40 years of copyright term extension combined, right? If term extension and expansion of copyright is the right to be angry at your audience for not listening to your music the right way, then this is the right to put braces on your kids' teeth and like a roof over your head and groceries in your fridge, right? It's a crack in the machine. We stick a lever and we wiggle it around. Money pours out of the machine into the pockets of artists. It's a structural intervention. It's not about individual bargaining. It's about taking away individual bargaining. It's about taking away your right to say, yeah, I will keep mum about the money you stole from me and where you hit it. And instead, it creates a collective right to know where the stolen money is. And this is a way to actually make things better for artists in material ways that we can actually accomplish. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you for all the writing, all the speaking you do, and continuing to fight for open access to creative products and to information and everything else you're doing. And thank you all of you for joining us. And see you at the next Equitable Enterprise podcast or video or webinar. And you can also see what we do on the website. Thanks, Marina. Thanks, everyone. Nice talking to you all. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting IFTF.org. Until next time.